Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. Welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. Here on this podcast, we talk about the building blocks and the micro habits that help us create real and lasting influence. What do I mean by that? Well, we're talking about the kind of influence that helps you achieve your goals and whatever it is in life that you want to accomplish. But perhaps most importantly, it's the type of influence that helps you create real impact and that enables you to truly thrive. Hey friend, welcome to episode 280. I am so excited to bring you this very special conversation today because while I talked a couple weeks ago about my word of the year, which is to be lighter or to lighten up, and that's true of my physical body <laughs> as well as my closets and also just my overall uh, sort of a focus on work to kind of lighten up the way that I that I think about work and maybe be a little easier on myself at times. I think we could probably all benefit from remembering to do that. But one of the other concepts um, that's really driving me this year is this notion of collaboration. Increasingly, I find that collaborations with various folks who are a good match help me bring you even more value from this podcast. And they also really enrich the type of content that I'm able to create here at She Said, She Said Media. One of my very favorite groups for sparking thoughtful collaborations and ideas and creative potential is the Southern Cootery or the Southern Sea, as they're affectionately known. Now, this year marks the third year in a row that we will have produced a series of conversations together that showcase not only our respective brands, the Southern Sea, as well as She Said, She Said Media, but most importantly, key themes that embody what makes our respective brands unique and also why we are great partners. I literally cannot say enough about how much I have gained personally and professionally from my experiences with this group over the past few years. And if you're listening and you're part of this group, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I have talked about in the past, in past episodes, about the importance of building a strong network and how one of the most important things that you can do is to be willing to freshen your network with new people and new ideas, and most importantly, to be willing to expose yourself to new ways of thinking. And that typically comes from folks who aren't necessarily in your same industry or sector, and maybe people that are completely new to you. But here's the key. The real value tends to come when we are open to possibilities that we might not otherwise consider. When everyone shows up with the spirit of how you can help, how you can partner, and how you can work together, it is a very, very powerful thing. And in those cases, we are only limited by our own imaginations. One reason why the Southern Sea is so effective and provides so much value to its attendees, myself included, is actually because of the culture of collaboration 
which is inspired by the unique partnership of its founders, my friends Whitney Long and Cherie Levy. Now, this duo approaches everything with this spirit of collaboration, and as a result, collaboration is literally woven into the fabric and all aspects of the content and activities that are part of the Southern Sea. In some cases, they may come about in ways that are really less obvious. I have been thinking a lot about this topic, as you can probably tell, and it can be very easy, especially in a carefully curated, Instagrammable kind of world, to fall into the comparison trap and to look at what someone else is doing, especially someone who's maybe in a job or a role or growing a business that's similar to what yours is, you look at her and you feel a sense that maybe you need to compete with her or to beat her or outdo her. But when everyone in the group is sharing and learning together and really tries to embody a mindset of how can we support each other, it shifts the dynamic into one that actually fuels both of you in a more positive and potentially more fruitful way. Now, here's the thing. This is learned behavior. I actually think we should think of it as a skill. Learning to collaborate is a skill that you develop, and with practice, you get better at it. It's a characteristic that I have always appreciated, but also one that I have been thinking so much about, how can I do a better job and and have more impact as a result of being more effective as a collaborator? So more to come on that because I'm working really hard at it, but I am truly, truly grateful for the countless examples that I've seen and experienced with the Southern Sea. We are just coming off of the 2024 summit, which was entirely amazing. And so this week in this episode, episode 280, we are kicking off our third annual collaboration series. And I am absolutely delighted to share the conversation that we recorded live this week. It is with fashion designer Sophia Demirtis. Sophia is the founder of Fanmon. It is a Turkish-based made-to-order fashion line that is primarily known for its absolutely stunning embroidery, as well as its acute attention to detail, both of which are actually a direct extension of Sophia's Haitian heritage. Now, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago my major closet cleanout as I worked to embody my word of the year to lighten up. And fortunately, or maybe fortuitously, that goal is also helped me make is also helping me make room for things like my new favorite garment, which is from Sophia's collection. It is the jumpsuit, and we talk about that at the beginning of this conversation. Be sure to follow me on Instagram. You'll find me at Laura Cox Kaplan, and I share a few photos from my conversation with Sophia. She is wearing a beautiful embroidered uh, dress that is covered in these embroidered butterflies. It is absolutely stunning, and I am wearing the jumpsuit that is now my favorite outfit. <laughs> One of the key things that really differentiates Fen, the Fenmon brand is how Sophia approaches her collaborations as well as how she thinks about her relationship with her employees. The particular life experiences that inspired and influenced Sophia is something that I think you will find incredibly inspiring. Friend, I think you're going to love this conversation. 
But before we jump into this episode and in the spirit of collaboration, I want to ask you for a favor. Reviews of podcasts are frankly a pain. (laughs) I don't like asking, but I really do need your help. Our growth is directly tied to reviews. When you extend me the kindness of sharing a five-star review and you also write a few words about maybe what you learned in an episode or why you choose to listen, it makes a big difference. It helps me continue to build credibility in the podcast space and it tells the podcasting algorithm, hey, push this one up on the list. So friend, if you have an extra minute today, I would be so grateful for you if you would uh, submit a nice review. I would really, really appreciate it. For now, though, here is episode 280 with the fabulous Sophia Demirtas, founder of Fonmon, and our first guest in this year's She Said, She Said podcast, the Southern Sea Collaboration Series. Enjoy. So you've met... Sophia Demirtas, who is the founder and CEO of the fabulous Von Mann um, company, which is inspired by her Haitian heritage. Um, if you've seen her designs, she's wearing one with these gorgeous embroidered butterflies. As I told Sophia, I may never take this jumpsuit off. It is the most comfortable thing, and I've gotten so many compliments. It really is incredible. But I'd love to start the conversation with you, um, both by thanking you for being part of the Southern Sea and our first guest as part of our third annual She Said, She Said podcast, Southern Sea Collaboration. So thank you for that. But let's start by talking about Van Mon and what it is, what makes it unique. Hello again, everybody. Um, well, the brand is very unique because it, it started out with um, the focus of having our customers very involved uh, in everything that we, we produce. Um, after leaving New York to move into Turkey, I really felt um, that change there was really a, a, a lack of the stuff that spoke to me um, in Turkey. So I ventured out into making jewelry. And um, from that process, I also started looking into um, the clothing that really spoke um, closely to my upbringing. Um, and embroidery um, was becoming very common, like very um, more visible with the whole Ukrainian and Slavic mm-hmm. Um, embroidery designs. So upon seeing that, I felt like it was something that was um, a reminder of growing up in Haiti because my grandmother did a lot of little um, intricate stuff, whether it was for her tables or whether it was just adding little details to my little dresses. Um, so the first dress that I did, I put it on online and you know, everyone, within a week, I think I sold nearly 50 pieces. And I kind of understood pretty much there, like there was um, something to consider as far as turning this into something very serious. And the most, out of this experience, the most important um, part that stood out to me was um, instantly making customization available to the woman. Mm -hmm. And everyone um, really reacted strongly to that. So that was not just really the beginning of the brand itself, but it was also the beginning of understanding that people wanted to be a part of 
um, the process. Mm -hmm. Maybe talk a little bit about how, so the, the business is a made-to-order business. Maybe talk a little bit about how that works in practice. Um, well, it's somewhat a little bit complicated than, than, than it sounds because you are, um, you know, when I first started the made-to-order and really wanted that to become a part of how the brand grew, um, a lot of people didn't understand it to some aspect. They thought it would really confuse the customer to give them so many options. But I begged to differ um, because I felt if I really wanted the, to add sentimental value to what it is that I was offering, I really wanted um, the woman to become a part of this journey. Um, so of course it took more effort uh, to decide the quantity of thread that would be applicable to, to the style, the amount of fabric that I would offer per style. Um, but the more uh, I received emails of women wanting to have a say into this final piece, um, the more I understood that that was the way that made sense for me. So I really put um, or learned from all the challenges and really made uh, catering to my customers need a priority. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let's go back um, and talk about where you began because one of the particularly interesting aspects, there's a lot of aspects to Sophia's story that are really fascinating to me, but the one that jumped out at me the most is the fact that she was not trained as a fashion designer. That was not her background. In fact, she has a very different background. And I would love for you to talk about that aspect of your journey, because I think it's so relevant to how she's built this business. Um, well, my background, are you referencing to my social work background? I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, I started out as a social worker because I really wanted um, to make a difference. I, uh, my last job on my profession, I was the director of a homeless shelter in Midtown. And that was really what I was set out to do. I really wanted to make significant difference in, in people's lives. And unfortunately, I guess, you know, reality struck hard um, upon realizing there are so many layers and levels and hierarchies that made it felt more of a challenge um, that I couldn't combate on my own. And um, luckily around that time, I started dating my now husband um, who suggested, well, you're in New York City, you have a great sense of style, you're very sensitive to tones and colors. Um, why not explore, you know, this whole fashion thing? And of course, I've had friends who were like, well, you should be a stylist, you should be this, you should be that. Um, but it wasn't really something that I saw myself um, partake in just because of, you know, people were kind of like seeing that side of me. Um, so upon uh, leaving my job, I, my husband, again, he suggested that, you know, I look into selling online. So I, I opened an eBay shop. And um, within that shop, I really started understanding the, the business side of, um, I guess, fashion. And again, not to be judgmental, but I also understood what was lacking 
um, because you would get, you would receive something from a high-end designer and you see all the issues, whether it was the fabric quality that I felt didn't match the price point or it was, you know, the stitching that was falling apart. So there were just so many things. And I was fortunate to be able to kind of like pick on these things and call out on them because my mom is like an amazing seamstress. So <laughs> I didn't necessarily go to school to, to learn to become a fashion designer, but I felt super blessed to have that um, sort of creative reference naturally from my mother. And um, so upon uh, learning and growing um, the business from a buying and selling standpoint, uh, one day, I think just before the recession, my husband mentioned, um, it's, it's funny how all the like key things comes from him. <laughs> um, so he reminds me of it when I... <laughs> I'll bet. <laughs> so, you know, he mentioned, well, if you're not someone who's really in control of what it is that you do, um, you are going to suffer um, as far as like manufacturing and production is concerned. So he just, you know, passingly said it, but it, it stuck with me. Um, moving into Turkey, I really didn't have the, the plan of getting into fashion or becoming a designer. It just, it just really happened um, because I left New York to go to Turkey because I really wanted a quiet life. And moving into Turkey with two young children, you're like, okay, am I just really going to become the stay-at-home mom? <laughs> Um, so um, that kind of is how I was thrusted into uh, discovering and, and growing and, and um, nurturing the brand. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely love that. Maybe talk a little bit about how you went about that. I also want to talk about, though, um, a lot about collaborations because that's really, you know, one of the themes that we want to dig into in this conversation. But let's talk first about sort of those first steps in building that brand in Turkey. You were new to the country. Yes. Um, well, I think, again, a lot of it was learning, making mistakes, and learning what works. And also, my approach to the brand, because again, I didn't go to school to become a designer, so there was not really this uh, pan out uh, outline of how I'm going to do things step by step. So it really um, was beneficial to kind of like do this and to not really give myself a lot of pressure or have expectations because I, I moved to Turkey to kind of like take things slow. And then here I was kind of um, setting up a business that I really didn't have much knowledge of. So the key thing that I did was um, working with people who were more uh, knowledgeable to some, ex to some sense. So I told you the story of how I put my dress online and within a week I sold nearly 50 pieces. Um, but I was also very fortunate within that week um, with the woman who, was going to, who made that singular dress for me. Um, she didn't necessarily have the capacity herself to go into... Um, producing that many pieces because these are women who have small little shops they do little tailoring repairs and things like that um, so she didn't necessarily have the base but again seeing that opportunity there I instantly um, made her a partner so I instantly collaborated with her so I guess you know in all right maybe this is my very first collaboration because it was really 
what helped me understand how to um, pull together and somehow figure out the missing parts. Um, because, you know, she's in Ukraine. I started in Ukraine. I had the atelier in Ukraine for the first seven years. Um, so she's in Ukraine, and we don't necessarily speak the same language. Um, we don't necessarily share the same values as far as culture and differences are concerned. But we understood that we had a very um, unique opportunity to make something different and uh, to, to come together for a common goal. And she was very eager um, to make this a permanent business thing for her, and I was very eager to learn. Um, so it worked out very well in the end. Yeah, that's amazing. I'd love for you to talk about how your background in social work mm -hmm. and this, you know, core empathetic um, sort of perspective that you have, how that informs the collaborations, both that collaboration that you just talked about, as well as others, because because you are doing a number of collaborations currently. Maybe talk about how that experience has informed or maybe provides sort of that, that guidepost, if you will, mm -hmm. for approaching collaborations. Um, well, I think it's very important to keep the human aspect into everything that we do. Um, and for me, I don't necessarily just focus on the numbers as far as you know, like how much the sale is going to turn out to be, or even the creativity for that matter. Um, because obviously, um, when you start having the dialogue about partnering with someone, I think it's really first and foremost important to understand um, the dynamic of both of you. Um, because sometimes you, know, you could both have a product um, that could seemingly pair well together, but you don't pair well together. So I think it's very important to um, show up as your true self, um, to be very uh, honest with, with the whole process, um, but more importantly, to really keep that human component as the core reason why you're coming together. Um, because anything outside of that, it, it, you take the challenges, I think, with a different approach because everything becomes even more of a struggle or, or frustration. Um, because you know, at the end, everyone just sees the collaboration, but it's really a process. Um, it's a process that takes hours of communicating, hours of maybe misreading into some things or having different sets of values and expectations. So I think when you have the human aspect um, as the core uh, value into starting that communication, it, it makes the process a lot easier. Yeah, maybe let's talk about a few specific collaborations. I know Claire V is one, mm -hmm. you're doing collaboration with Dillard's, which yes. you talked about. Maybe give us some specifics on, you know, examples of how they work well and sort of how you apply that philosophy as it relates to those collaborations. Um, well, the very first collaboration I guess branded to brand I did was with Claire V. And it was really a learning process at that point um, because obviously there are a, a lot more established, like a, a better established brand um, than my brand was at the time. So it was very clear for me to understand um, this is an opportunity, but not something that I, I necessarily want to change my brand's identity. So I understood uh, very well, as much as 
um, this is an opportunity, it's something that really has to convey what my brand represents as much as they're looking to make the, the details of that final product represent their brand. Um, so again, it's really keeping the conversation very humanly and honest and um, saying no to the things that you absolutely feel that's not aligned with what it is that you want to convey in, in, in that collaboration. And you know, saying yes to the things that you feel is not only just going to benefit your brand, but is also going to be something that that brand benefits from. And it's something that both of you could look at and be extremely proud of. So you know, an example is, uh, my conversation with Dillard's, for example, um, you know, they really wanted to have um, some of our key pieces, but really uh, present it in a way that they know that their customers would, you know, be stronger to react to. So, you know, of course, it would be the easiest thing to say, well, this is what has always worked for me, and maybe that's what you, you need to do. Um, but it's really having that understanding that this is, um, a collaboration is really that. It's you pairing with someone to take what it is that they're strong at and to, for you to bring together what you're strong at and ultimately turn it into something that both of your customers could really continue to want and respect and appreciate. I, I love that. Maybe let's talk about, take it one step further and talk about how collaborations work or how you think about collaborations with influencers. Um, well, collaboration with influencers is um, unique in the sense that, again, the, the human aspect. I think with social media, it's very easy for us, um, you know, to see an influencer and, and not necessarily not see them as human, but to forget that they're human because you're just really thinking of what it is that they could deliver. Um, so be it uh, more followers, so be it more traffic to your website. But I think um, once you keep that human component really at the core of even deciding to work with that person, um, it, makes, it makes it a true collaboration because it's not just you know, I'm sending you this, or I'm gifting you this, or whatever that transactional part of the influencer collaboration may be, to just keep it just based off of that. It's really to, to have a dialogue, um, and especially when it comes to influencer. I, I love working with influencers for the fact that um, both of you can really grow together and understand that there's value to continue to be added um, with, coming together. Yeah, yeah. Um, you told me an interesting story. Um, we had breakfast together this morning. And you told me something that really blew my mind, which was that you provide food for your employees. Like, yes. And you actually oftentimes cook yourself for yes. your employees. <laughs> Talk about that and why that's important, why that's a core value for the business. Um, well, again, it's, um, it's really about uh, creating a healthy and uh, nurturing environment, I think. When we are really looking at people as people, I think it really allows um, us the opportunity um, to allow them to be the best version of themselves because everyone thrives in a nourishing environment. Everyone thrives in a healthy environment. So when you add respect um, and integrity to that component, I think you will definitely uh, end up 
having the best type of people around you. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're perfect. There's not gonna be drama that you don't necessarily wanna deal with from time to time. But I think um, once you're able to understand, you know, like uh, you're seeing somebody that comes to work on a day-to-day -day basis or somebody who's kind of like becoming a part of your business, um, life has its ups and downs for everyone. And when you're able to have an approach that allows people to feel like they could be themselves um, in your surrounding um, and to feel safe in some way, because I think a lot of times too, when you're thinking of production, you're thinking, you know, like this is someone that's kind of like seated in a factory and kind of like sweating and is, is working under all these um, harsh conditions. But I think with technology, with more knowledge, and with more empowerment um, within our communities, we can really shift things. And I would not necessarily feel comfortable or confident um, to talk about the quality of my product if in some ways I'm not doing my part in uplifting the lives of the people who are bringing the quality of the product. Um, so I think it really goes hand in hand. It's not just, um, to think again of just the numbers. Yes, we're in business, we wanna be successful, we want um, to earn and, and, and make money, but it's not at the expense of tearing somebody else down. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. Um, if you could sort of go back to the very beginning, is there one sort of data point or piece of information or skill set or something that you wish you had had or known mm -hmm. when you first started? as you sort of think back, and I apologize, I didn't ask you this question in advance, but, but I'm curious, you know, would you, would you change anything if you could go back? Not at all. I think um, in many ways, life has really equipped me, and it takes maturity. It takes going through some challenges to really understand that. Um, having been born and raised in Haiti, I think probably that was kind of like the first set of lessons. Um, to, to kind of like understand the simplicity of life and to really put value on the things that are important. Um, so I was very fortunate to, to be raised by a wise woman, my grandmother, and to also be raised around women who are very nurturing. So the whole, you know, made to order um, question that you asked about the brand, it also stems from my upbringing in Haiti because I grew up in a culture where, you know, uh, people, women, whether it's men, women, children, they had you know, uh, the selection of their best fabric and they would bring it to the tailor to make it for them. And those really became staple pieces to some extent, like you would wear it to pieces. And I think somewhat subconsciously when I started the brand, maybe that's why the made to order component made so much sense for me because obviously this is what I was um, brought around and that what was felt that's what was normal to me from like at the very core. Um, so as far as changing anything, I don't think I would, I would have changed anything. Um, I, I wouldn't. Yeah. I'm curious if your business advisors have told you, you know, made to order, people won't wait for made to order. This is like, you know, an on-demand society, right? Yeah. Everything is instantaneous. Yeah. Have people told you, you know, this is not, you shouldn't approach it that way? And of course, and I think that's why as women, um, when we know something to be right, and I guess we call it instinct or that gut feeling, 
we cannot be deterred, we shouldn't be deterred by what someone is not able to see, feel, or visualize the way that we comprehend it. So it's very important um, to kind of like stick to what it is in your core that you feel is right, makes sense. And eventually, hopefully, they'll see it and understood that you were right all along. So, you know, this whole made-to-order approach, um, people, you know, they told me it would be very costly, which, you know, it was at the very beginning. Um, it's time-consuming, very much so. Um, it's tedious, you know, because you're dealing with people who are impatient, they're fussy, you know, like everyone has their own sort of like, Stuff. Yeah, their own <laughs> construed thoughts that um, they wanted to kind of impose. And in the end, I kind of felt, well, this makes sense. You know, it, it absolutely makes sense because we're not um, like cookie cutters. We're not all shaped the same. We're not all uh, built the same by any means. So it was always um, really about allowing every woman that wants to wear what I make or every person that wears what I make to understand that there's a space for them. There's a space that um, their indifference would be uh, embraced. Yeah, um, I think it can be really hard when you're getting feedback and input from professionals, mm -hmm. right? And they're steering you in a direction that is not consistent where, where, where you think the business needs to go in your gut. Mm -hmm. So I'd love for you to offer the audience, mm -hmm. me, any advice for how do you know mm -hmm. which advice to listen to and not listen to? How do you, how do you stay true to your core mm -hmm. while still getting the appropriate feedback and input? Well, Maybe one of the best things that kind of like happened all on its own that happened for me at the start of my business was being broke, um, literally having no money. Um, that was definitely a blessing in disguise. You know, of course, when you're struggling, you just think you need all this money to hire this person and, you know, to have that person coming and have all this input. Um, but, you know, I, I moved to Turkey with a good amount of money, but you know, you move there without any plan of continuing to earn money, so that that money burns out very quickly. So um, when I was kind of starting, I didn't necessarily have um, the finances to hire, like let's say a PR right away, or to start dealing with the showroom right away, um, or to have like a website person right away. So it really allowed me the space. And again, even if you have money, I think it's really important to um, put yourself in a position to learn, like to teach yourself things. And we live in an era where every information is so um, accessible. So I read a lot of stuff. I read and, um, you know, there are also a lot of people that I knew would be important to work with um, to kind of like take the brand to where I wanted, I wanted it to go. So I would set up meetings and have interviews with these people to kind of like just have an understanding of what was out there. Um, so that was kind of like my way of finding information without having someone kind of come in and tell me what needed to be done and what needed not to be done. And of course, all the people who were giving me their opinion, which, you know, I didn't ask for were friends and family. <laughs> 
<laughs> and you don't need to pay for that. <laughs> so um, it really helped me to filter out and understood what it is that I really wanted this brand to become before I was in a position um, to have the experts come in and kind of like guide me. And by that time, um, I learned or went through so many difficulties that I understood that their suggestions was just advice. And you know, the choice to make it applicable would be by me based on what I felt in my core would be the right direction for the brand. That's such good advice. I really love that. You want to talk um, for a minute about some of the future collaborations that you have coming up? We've mentioned Dillard's, but maybe some other uh, opportunities that you're taking advantage of? Um, yeah, I have something coming down the pipeline with OTM that I'm really excited about. Um, because this year, we've seen such uh, an influx with brides and bridesmaids where um, so we felt like it was time to do something very special um, with OTM. I think we're launching with them um, in the coming months. Um, so I'm really excited about that. Um, so yeah, I think uh, I'm ready for questions. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have questions for Sophia? <laughs> I'm going to be in your mentor group. I'm Lark Champion with Lark and Lane. And I grew up going to Haiti and collecting Haitian art, and it's a huge part of how I started my business, how my mom started um, her business. But other than saying that, I wanted to ask you, and you may have answered this earlier, when you're doing collaborations with, say, a Dillard's, is that made to order as well? Or are, you, are they ordering it from you, and then you're producing it, and they sell it like ready to wear in their stores? Um, well, the made-to-order, well, first of all, I'm very happy that you are very involved in Haiti from, from uh, your family's uh, background. Um, the, with the whole Dillard's collaboration, it was, it, it's, it was really special because we obviously work to reimagine a lot of the pieces that we're um, launching, whether it's in colorways, whether it's um, embroidery details. Um, so with, with wholesale, it's very difficult to kind of like have a made to order basis because obviously you have details that are kind of like decided upon, you have fabrics that are decided upon. Um, so it makes more sense to, uh, kind of produce according to what it is that they know that their customer, um, would be most responsive to. So the whole made-to-order component of the brand re, uh, really lives on our website because this is where somebody could come and order just a singular dress or order three dresses. And because we're kind of cutting everything as they are being made, it puts us in the position to, you know, to cater to that specific customer because instead of you know, um, seeing the dress in the pink and ordering as it is in that pink, well, we have to cut that dress and make it anyway. So if she prefers that in a navy, why not make it for her? Um, the embroidery is not ready on the fabric because it's not print. Um, if she wants the embroidery to be in a different color, why not make it for her? Um, and also it goes down to sizing. Um, this is something I think um, my uh, web manager is here. That's something that we're really going to focus on launching this year because I think 
you know, a lot of times people think made to order and customization are the same thing. Um, when, you know, it's, it's, it has, it serves two purposes because you could make, have a made to order dress exactly as the dress is presented on the website or as seen, but it's just the sizing that needs to be adjusted to that customer's fit. Mm -hmm. um, and then you also have the whole made to order where, you know, it's pretty much everything that's being touched. Mm -hmm. So that's unique to the website. Thank you. You're welcome. Other questions? Oh, yeah, hi. Yeah, hi, um, my business is also hand embroidery, so I was curious how you started out, like were you just doing smaller scale projects and um, you know, custom orders and then you grew or did you start out big and? I'm sorry, which part? Um, did you, like at the beginning before your business really took off, were you just like hand embroidering yourself for like smaller, customer base or did you start out with the intention of it being like a global company that was taking made to order? Yes, well, the brand honestly started out of um, personal necessity. The, the dress that I put online that blew, um, at the time it felt like it was such a major accomplishment to sell so many pieces in, in, in a week. Um, it was something that was made just for myself and customers, um, well, the. Instagram audience really responded well to it, um, and we made it. So that was really uh, a leverage sort of like uh, period because the singular dress that was made for me, that was made by hand completely. But here we are with 50 pieces that needed to kind of like be done um, instantly. So we ended up kind of like splitting it. The quantity that could be made completely by hand was made by hand and the others that could be made um, by machine were made by machine. So again, that was uh, a learning experience to really understand for how long could we continue to just focus on only made by hand embroidery or for how long do we need to consider having a machine come in and have that a part of the business. Um, so when we started, even though we kind of like, we did pretty good for a startup brand, we had kind of like far and few in between sales online. So, you know, there was this whole team that was only making things by hand. But as the brand kind of like gained momentum, um, we find that it was necessary to, to have a machine come on board. And I think a lot of times when people hear machine, they just think, oh, it's just a machine you set off and then it just does all the embroidery work. But in reality, that machine is tied to a human's presence because, you know, you have so many um, especially for me, I like details and intricate uh, colorings and mergings of things. So you have to have humans present to switch these threads, to do all the things that it takes to make sure that the machine is operating and um, flat out, not giving damage to that fabric. So um, depending on how you want to grow your business, you definitely have to consider bringing machine on board. Um, because obviously, you know, if, if you're just making seldom things here and there. Hand is 100% the way to go, but if you start having a larger audience, um, definitely you have to do machines. And I don't think anyone um, can deliver at wholesale um, at a large capacity just doing things by hand, unless you start doing those hand embroideries um, at least months in advance. Um, one part of the brand that just only does hand embroideries are cardigans. Um, that's also a very special um, part of production for us. 
Um, they're made by women that are um, stay-at-home moms that's taking care either of their elderly parents or uh, disabled children. So all the embroideries on the cardigans are made by hand as far as their knitting um, itself is completely made by hand. Um, but again, if someone wants to order a large quantity, there is really an early time that this has to be placed because obviously it's, it's made by hand. Okay, great, thank you. You're welcome. Other questions? Um, in terms of collaborations, I was wondering if you ever had to back out of a collaboration because you realized that something was wrong in your gut or the people weren't working and or if someone came to you and it could be really exciting, but you're like, I have to focus on things A, B, and C, and this is super jazzy and exciting, but I, can't, I just can't do it right now. Mm -hmm. I think that's hard. If people want to say yes all the time, mm -hmm. where to back out when your gut's telling you no, if that can be tricky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's um, really being honest with yourself because you have to understand the capacity and your bandwidth. Um, because it's one thing to... Um, consider a collaboration and understand very early on that it's not gonna go anywhere. So you don't end up wasting your time or anybody else's time. Um, versus, you know, delving into something and really starting to give it a part of you and having that person or team give a part of themselves and then you pull out last minute. Um, so my process with collabs, um, the ones that, the, the brands that I contacted to do collaborations with is because I knew that for sure, you know, from my part, from my side, I 100% wanted to act on that and see it through completely. And of course, you know, that, that team maybe, you know, they would say otherwise. But from, from me, I understood that time-wise, I was prepared. Um, Financial-wise, I was prepared. Like in every aspect, I was prepared. Um, but, you know, you still have to start with um, an honest dialogue, because it's not just about you having that um, creative aspect or that brand having that creative aspect. Like I said to Laura earlier on, sometimes it's just you and that team or you and that brand, that the dynamic just doesn't sit right. And, you know, if you're assess things really truthfully, you will understand that at the very first meeting. You will understand if this is something that you want to continue to delve in or not. And um, so I think, you know, that's really the first part is really being honest with yourself to understand, is this something that I want to see through? Is this something that I want to invest my time in? And, you know, there has been situations um, where, you know, you start a, 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 to delve into a collaboration and you kind of felt like, well, maybe this is not really going to be something that I um, want to go through with. And, so for me, what I have done is whatever, whenever that thought comes in, I would pull in that team and tell them specifically, this is where I'm at. Um, you know, because nothing is kind of like carved in stones that if you start, you must finish. Some, some concerns will arise. And I find that when you're honest and you make that known, then if they're really um, as willing to see this through as you are, then you kind of come to a meeting ground and sort through and, and, and make it work, or not. Such great advice. Sophia, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you so much, uh, Laura. I love the conversation and loved getting to know you. Yes. Big round of applause for Sophia.
Hey friend, to learn a bit more about the Southern Sea and Sophia Demirtas and Fenmon, check out the show notes for this episode. It's episode 280. And be sure to follow me on Instagram for more about what I learned this year at the Southern Sea and how we collaborated at this year's summit. In the meantime, thanks for sharing some quality time with me today. I hope you found it to be a good investment in you. I'll talk to you again next week. And remember, She Said, She Said podcast is a weekly production of She Said, She Said Media.